All right, our ushers are preparing to pass out Bibles and note sheets and pencils, so we hope those will be a blessing to you. If you need a Bible, make sure to raise your hand and they'll bring one to your seat so that you can follow along as we learn together through God's holy and perfect Word. The Word of God is, of course, central to everything that we do as a church. I think of the first words of the book of Hebrews, where the author of that book mentions that in days past, that God spoke to the, pro, uh, to the fathers through the prophets, but in these days He has spoken to us through His Son. And the Word of God represents the words of the Son. This is, these are the things that He has given to the church, that we might know Him and might worship Him well. And so uh, our, our hope and, and our prayer is that this church will always continue to strive in the Word together, that we might grow in sanctification and become holy like our God in heaven is holy. The weight of last week's heavy words carry over into chapter 5 of Hosea. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up to chapter 5 of that Old Testament minor prophet. There really is no relief to the woe that is cast upon Israel through this chapter 5 until we get into the very first verses of chapter 6. When we finished 4, God had turned His prophetic attention to the southern kingdom of Judah and was declaring a stern warning to them that was designed to make the northern kingdom face the magnitude of their own rebellion against God. God has made it clear regarding that northern kingdom Israel that He has left them alone. His message to the southern kingdom of Judah, therefore, is you are to leave them alone as I have left them alone. So the removal of His presence, the removal of His mercy, initiates a kind of loneliness in the land that the north was not prepared for. But the extent of their adultery against God is so severe that God doesn't just stop there. He has more to say in condemnation of their rebellion against Him. So we have seen the Lord issue a detailed account of the role that the unfaithful priesthood has played in this schism between God and the nation of Israel in the north. Those priests were not faithful to administer worship the proper ways. They had polluted the word of God to their people. And so now in chapter 5, Yahweh is going to levy a stern rebuke directed also at the kings and the princes. Not only are these these priests in part responsible for the neglect of God's holy word, but the kings and those who have led the nation of Israel in a political sense, they hold a responsibility as well. So this morning we're going to take the following approach to this rather large passage of scriptures that we're going to be studying through. We're going to look first at how verses 1 through 7 of chapter 5 describe what Israel has done. We're going to look back in a a summary kind of sense to some of the iniquities that that Israel has committed against God. And then in verses 8 through 15, chapter 5 describes what God is prepared to do because of Israel's lack of faith to Him. And then we're going to actually dip into chapter 6 a little bit and look at verses 1 through 3 which describes Hosea's plea to his people in light of their guilt. Considering their failures and considering God's recompense to their failures, Hosea is going to give direction to this mourning people uh, who have seen now the weight of their sin. So first we look at what Israel has done. And we've got our Bibles open in Hosea chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 7, and then I'll exposit those verses. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. 
and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. And now the, moon, the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Let's ask God to bless our understanding of this Holy Scripture. God, we are grateful to be gathered here together in your presence. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, God, we expect this word to be a boon to our soul. Father, we all at times need to be confronted with our iniquity. And we see here how dangerous it is to ignore the confrontation that the word brings that shows us that our sin is, is real and weighty. We can see how devastating that ignorance was to Israel in the north as it cost them their nationality, Lord. I pray, Father, that as we look at these verses and as we consider the, the better new covenant that you have brought us into, Lord, that we would be assured of our place, that it is with you, Lord, and that it is lasting and that it cannot be taken away because our relationship with you has been won not through our obedience, but through the obedience of Jesus Christ, the one you've sent. And so help us, Lord God, to rejoice in that reality today, Lord God, and help us to learn from the history of which we are a part. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We have here in the beginning of chapter 5 a kind of a, a Paul Washer moment. If you are not familiar with Paul Washer, he's a, a dear brother who serves through Heart Cry Ministries, and he's a very prophetic style of preaching, a very thus saith the Lord way of bringing the scriptures to people. He's not afraid to pull punches. He's not afraid to call sin what it is. And uh, he was once famously invited to a, a national youth conference. And this conference was an event that had very clearly been impacted by many of the mainstream kind of American gospel problems that we have seen are plaguing the church in America today. And as he preached, he preached with power, he preached with conviction, he preached in an exposing way, showing the weakness of modern Christianity and much of the church in our nation. And at one point in his sermon, as he preached against lukewarm Christianity, the crowd of hundreds of young people and leaders began to applaud him. Audibly, people were cheering about his preaching. And, and Washer paused and let the, the, the cheers die down. And he said straight to them, he said, I don't know why you're applauding. I'm talking about you. And there was just an utter silence over the congregation. And I feel that this is in some ways what the prophet Hosea is bringing to the northern kingdom in a very similar way. They're being called out for the iniquities that they don't even realize maybe some of them are, are involved with, are guilty of. In verse 1, Hosea says, The judgment is for you. And then the Hebrew literally says, the judgment is yours, which we miss this in the, in the English, but in the Hebrew there's a, a double entendre there. There's a, a, a way that, that God is pointing out the fact that judgment 
has been revealed to them. They should know what is right and what is wrong. They have been the carriers of the law of God and the good word of Yahweh as His chosen and covenant people. So they should own, in some sense, the judgment of God. But because they have failed to apply that judgment to themselves, because they have not been faithful to carry out the word of God, now God's harsh judgment is coming upon them as a people. They are being judged by God with the very law that they had been given that was supposed to separate them out from the other lawbreakers in the world that they lived in. Hosea leaves no doubt about where the woe he is describing is aimed at. Those who have led the northern tribes, these leaders who have fallen so short, not only the priests, but the kings and the princes as well, they must answer for this failure in the north. The substandard worship that God hates has been the official policy of these northern kings. At places such as Gilgal and Bethel, mentioned in chapter 4, we've read a little bit about how false worship has happened there. But here we see a clue that the corruption is already spilling over into the borders, not just of the northern kingdom, but also into the worship that's happening in Judea, in the southern kingdom. Mizpah and Tabor which are mentioned here in verse 1, were likely border towns in the territory of Benjamin. Small towns that were not really well known as places of worship, but where this kind of counterfeit, syncretistic worship was beginning to show up as well. The cancer, it seems, is spreading. The cultic activities that we read about in Gilgal and Bethel were effectively a trap of sin, says Hosea. They presented the appearance of honoring God but those who participated in this false worship that was not prescribed by God's word, which was not proclaimed by the prophets, those who came to worship in that corrupted way were in a sense falling into a trap of sin. They were practicing a, a kingdom-sanctioned disobedience. And this ended up being an insult against God instead of a worship to Him. Instead of honoring Him, it was a slight to His name. And it appears that that trap is beginning to draw in more and more victims. The worship compromises that were happening in the north were probably taking place on the borderlands to the south now as well. So those who participated are described as revolters in verse 2. And they've gone into what is called here deep slaughter, deep into slaughter. And it, this could very well mean that the kind of syncretism that they're starting to see, the kind of adding of foreign false worship that was, that was common in the temples to foreign false gods was beginning to make its way into the true places of worship where God was to be lifted up and exalted. And their wicked and defiled habits were beginning to be mixed with the habits of those who were following after Yahweh. Perhaps even to the point where some of the worship practices of a, of a wicked god named Molech were being adapted. Deep, revolting, deep slaughter could point to the idea that some Israelites were even offering up their own children on altars to God. Can you imagine how far the people of God have fallen if some are even giving worship to God, thinking that they're doing something that pleases Him, when in actuality, they're doing the most detestable thing imaginable. They're defiling the very image of God in their own children by offering human sacrifices at these false temples. These are not sins that will go unpunished. The nature of our sin is so deceptive, friends, that if we don't keep ourselves anchored to the book, to the word of God that he has given to us, 
then our inter interpretations, our personal understandings or, or ideas of what might be holy and good can lead us into grave and, and, and serious error where we're actually sinning to God in the worshipful gifts that we're giving to Him. And He doesn't want that kind of worship. We cannot underestimate the power of the human heart to deceive itself into thinking that the sinful things that He does will not only go unpunished by God, but might even be presented to Him as an act of worship. I want you to turn in your Bibles for a moment to Luke 18. This New Testament passage records some of the teachings of our Savior, Luke 18. We're going to look at verses 9 through 14 for a moment here. Jesus is addressing his disciples, and he also told them in verse 9 this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. As most of you probably are aware of, the Pharisees in that day were considered some of the holiest people, the most devout religiously, whereas the tax collectors carried a stigma upon them. They were considered vile liars. They were considered to be traitors to the Jews as they collected tribute to Caesar in the province of Judea. So these two men go forward to offer prayer. Verse 11 the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So that's the first prayer that, that Jesus mentions to these, these people who are hearing him teach. Verse 12, or verse 13 rather, but the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Both of these two men mentioned in this parable that Jesus had shared, were there at the temple to do essentially the same thing. They came to give something worshipfully to Yahweh. But the gift of prayer that they gave was radically different. The tax collector was so aware of his own sin and so humbled by the mercy of, the collect, uh, so humbled by the mercy of Yahweh that he, he could not even bear to lift up his eyes towards God. He didn't feel worthy to look in the direction of his God. He had no boast before the king, but rather begged for mercy from the Lord. The Pharisee's prayer, though directed towards God, and though it contained much religious language, was essentially about the Pharisee and not about God himself. He didn't appeal to the Lord for help in his prayer. Instead, he boasted in his superiority to another man who he should have seen as a brother. The Pharisee likely went home that day from his time of worship oblivious to the fact that his gift that he tried to give to God meant nothing to the Lord. He was praying glory only to himself rather than giving glory to God. And though he felt secure that his arrogance, his lack of compassion, his smugness were all perfectly acceptable to God, he could not have been more wrong. 
If we want to worship well as God's people, then we should worship Him as He has taught us to worship Him. We should not give Him gifts that we think are acceptable or pleasing or gifts that we have innovated and and creatively and imaginatively added to the Word of God. We should worship God as He has told us to worship Him. And we should do so with a humble heart. The northerners who offered sacrifices on the high places thought that they were offering something good to Yahweh, but in reality they were giving to the wind. For their persistent, unrepentant disregard for God's commands has resulted in a situation where their offerings are not only loathsome to God, but they are entirely disregarded by Him. Remember verse, or chapter 4, God has left them alone. Some of Israel's transgressions are performed boldly by Jews who believe themselves to be justified in their behavior. Others are performed quietly in hopes of being overlooked. But none are hidden from Yahweh. None of their iniquities pass by unseen by God. Verse 3, God knows the truth about Ephraim. We see a repetitive form of this declaration in the Revelation report cards. In the last book of Scripture that we have in our canon, the Lord God addresses seven prominent bodies of believers in the New Testament and the New Covenant, and He talks to each one of them about what they need to do and how they are doing as a church. It's sometimes called the report cards to the churches. Look at how much he emphasizes the fact that he knows these churches, that he understands what they're going through. He understands where where they stand in faith. Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. This is to the church at Ephesus. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Look at Revelation 2.9. This is to Smyrna. He says to that church, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Verse 13 of the same chapter, this to Pergamum. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And then again in Revelation 2, verse 23, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. To be known by God can be one of the greatest joys of all. If the righteousness of Christ is upon us, then to be known by God is a wonderful thing. But to those who do not trust in God, they must be afraid, they must be terrified to think that there is a God on high who can see past every one of their defenses, who knows them inside and out and knows the depth of their rebellion against His law. I know them, says the Lord. And this is meant to contrast against verse 4 where he says, they know not the Lord. He knows them, but they do not truly and faithfully know Him. A quick point of clarity here. When Hosea writes of Ephraim, who are we talking about specifically? Now this is a name that is used to describe generally the northern kingdom. And why does Hosea keep going back to this term Ephraim? Why does he call him by that specific tribe's name? He does so because Jeroboam, who was the man who convinced the northern tribes to separate from
from Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and the southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah, he convinced them to separate and start this new nation of Israel. So it was Jeroboam who initiated the northern kingdom who is about to lose its identity as a kingdom. Since that schism, the nation of Israel was divided, northern and, and southern kingdoms, and will effectively remain so until Messiah. But that northern kingdom is the one upon whom this judgment is coming. So often Hosea will call that northern kingdom Ephraim. Because their deeds are exposed to God, God is omniscient, and he cannot overlook. And so he sees everything that they have done wrong. He must also deal with those transgressions. Because God is a perfectly just God, and because he must punish sin, he cannot see these sins and do nothing about them. He has to bring chastisement. He has to bring judgment. And because there is no repentance or shame that is evident in the, na the nation of the northern kingdom, he must at this point separate from them. He must turn away. With their flocks, they go to seek the Lord. They go to engage in acts of worship, bringing their sheep and their goats to offer sacrifices at these false high places of worship. They go not with the intention of true repentance to turn back to the right way of worship that God has called them to. They go instead with pride, pride that has convinced them that they aren't guilty of anything wrong. They will not find the Lord at those high places, for he has vacated their presence. He has left them alone. Because they have defiled the covenant and acted in a faithless way towards God, he will not receive their offerings anymore. Their worship is worthless to him. Now in verse 7, the prophet points out that these northerners have borne alien children. And this may make us immediately think towards intermarriage. We know that in the Old Covenant that those who believed in Yahweh were not allowed to marry with those who did not believe in Yahweh because the covenant that they had with God was the defining feature of who they were as a people. So they had no business marrying with people who did not care for their God and did not care for His ways. But that is not necessarily what is in mind here when it talks about these alien children. The resulting mix of cultures produced when the Jews married non-Jews really only took its greatest impact upon the people after the Assyrian army invades and conquers the north. That is where we get the, the creation of this nation called the Samaritans, which were people who identified with Jewish heritage, but had syncretized their faith with that of those spouses that they had married and really seriously diluted the worship of God in the north. However, Hosea's idea of alien children likely has much more to do with the fact that the upcoming generation had been taught a Jewish faith that was so far removed from what the scriptures prescribe that it was essentially an alien faith. It was not true Judaism. And so these children were raised in a Judaism that was completely strange to the God it claimed to honor. What a responsibility we have, friends, to raise up our children in the truth. That's not just an Old Testament concept. If we have faith in the Lord God, then we must know the word of the Lord because our children are counting on us to teach them what true faith really is. And if we give them an example in our actions of not honoring the word of God, of behaving in an impenitent way towards the Lord, then we're going to train them up to act in that same pattern. If we do not teach them the true and faithful word of the Lord, if we do not give them what the word has given to us, then we are setting them up to stumble 
Because those children are then going to have to figure out for themselves what, what, is, what is true about God and what is false about God. And we live in a world where there will be hundreds of other voices trying to teach them a false picture of who God is. Mothers and fathers, it is our responsibility. It is our honor and our joy, but also our deep responsibility to raise our children up in the way of the Lord. And then as the new moon approaches, verse 7, in, in other words, in just a short while, the consequences of the northern kingdom's lack of faith will begin to unfold in a shocking way, which brings us to the second half of chapter, seven, or chapter 5, rather, a portion that focuses on what Yahweh is prepared to do. We've seen now a recap of what the northern kingdom of Israel has done, which has elicited this great rebuke from God. And now these verses 8 through 15 will show us what God is preparing himself to do. If you've got your Bible open to Hosea, let's look at verses 8 through 15. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed and crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Verse 8 begins with a summons to blow the horn, to sound the trumpet. And culturally, to the Jew, that meant one very important thing. It meant that the enemy was invading. And to their horror, that enemy, the reason they're sounding the trumpet and blowing the horn, that enemy is not necessarily Assyria. It is God himself. Yahweh is set to bring judgment down upon the northern kingdom. And if Benjamin and Judah follow in the same patterns as their sisters in the north, then their judgment won't be far behind. And so we see an integration of both nations in this woe that comes in the last half of the chapter. Verse 8 begins with a summons. Ephraim shall become like a desolation. Now this is in contrast to the land of milk and honey that God had gifted them with. Remember when Israel had just been removed from their slavery in Egypt and had been promised a place of inheritance. That place was described not as a desolation, but of a place of great abundance, a place where the resources were flowing. There was more than the people would need to not only survive, but to thrive for generations. But because the people who have now taken on this inheritance and have been enjoying the fruit of its land, because they have neglected the giver of the gift, then this land is about to become like a wasteland, a place not flowing with milk and honey, but a place where it's difficult even to survive. In verse 10, the southern kingdom is mentioned here, foreshadowing along with verse 5, that the punishments that come upon the north will likewise come upon the south unless there is radical repentance. The princes of Judah have become like those who moved the landmark. Now, this was a serious offense in those days. 
It's an interesting critique on the kings of the southern kingdom because to remove the landmark was to, to move a marker stone that delineated whose land belonged where. And the Israelites had land that was not just something they had purchased for themselves, but it's something that God, Yahweh, had given to them and to their families as a perpetual inheritance. So to move a landmark, to cheat someone out of the land, was to do more than just take their resource. It was to lie about what God had given to them. Now this is a very, very interesting critique of the South. Because if the kings of the South are breaking the law of God in this way, then they shouldn't be too shocked when God punishes them by moving the landmark in Benjamin, the border, the borderland between the north and the south. When the Assyrian army would come in just a, a short while after these prophecies, and he would, it would conquer the northern kingdom, they wouldn't be satisfied just to take Israel. They wanted the south as well. And their armies would push down along those borderlands and try to move the stones, so to say, and claim some of that Judean territory for themselves. And this would be a recompense for the dishonest way that the princes in Judah had been behaving towards the tribes. God's wrath doesn't come out of nowhere. It's a determination to go after filth that has sealed the northern kingdom's fate. He has been long-suffering to them. He has given them a law that should have been to them a warning and a signal. The, the horn has actually been blowing for a while, but no one has been listening to it. And so Yahweh in his judgment of the northern kingdom will be like two of his creation, he says. He says, I am like a moth to Ephraim. Now this, this promise of God indicates destruction in small increments. A moth is a very small, measly creature, one that has seemingly no sense or no strength at all. A little child can swat at a moth and crush it. And so it is easy to think that it has no threat to you. But moths, though they are easy to underestimate, possess the capacity to do much harm to personal pro uh, property over time. If any of you have ever opened up a box of clothing that you haven't worn for a while, only to find that the garments in that box are riddled with holes, they've been chewed to the point of being useless, then you may have experienced the quiet power of this little creature. A moth over time can render worthless what you have once considered a blessing. And so by way of Hosea, Yahweh is exposing the fact that Israel has underestimated the impact of ignoring their God. He has already been punishing them by small degrees. They had treated his law with contempt and acted as though there would be no real consequence for their neglect. They didn't treat God like a lion. They treated him like a moth. And so the corruption has begun internally. But one day soon, perhaps 722 B.C., the day when, uh, or the year when Assyria finally conquers the, the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, then Hosea declares, or Hosea declares that they will end, wake up finding themselves uh, in a state where the various blessings they have come to enjoy by the generous hand of the Lord have become corrupted and are no longer able to bring them joy or comfort. Those things have been eaten up by the moths. Now on the other end of this prophetic scale, this symbolic imagery, God says, I will be like a moth to you, like the smallest of creatures. But he also says in verse 14, I will be like a lion to Ephraim. A lion, of course, is an adversary who strikes terror into the hearts of those who are threatened by it. Unlike the moth, when a lion is spotted in the wild, those who behold it are instantly aware 
that they are in the presence of a fast, agile, powerful predator. And there will come a time in the near future when God will make it impossible for the northern kingdom to underestimate the authority that God wields over his unruly people. Now there is no doubt here at this point that Hosea is pointing to the pending domination of Assyria in the north. Having been a threat to Israel and many other nations in that region for some time, Assyria was beginning to grow in ambition and in ability. And they would soon set their eyes on the resources that belonged to the people of God. Their wealth, their blessings, their land, all of it. All of this becomes the target of Assyria's focus and greed. Ironically, Assyria is a nation that instead of going to the Lord God when they had problems, the northern kingdom appealed to Assyria instead. They wanted a treaty with Assyria so that they might be assured that no one would take them over and no one would harm them. And it is the very false sense of security that they went towards with Assyria that will ironically be their undoing when that nation comes and takes over their land. Through a brisk and intense campaign of war, the capital city of Samaria would fall, and then one by one, other mighty cities in the north will be unable to resist the military power of this pagan force, and Israel will concede defeat and lose its sovereignty, becoming subjects to foreign kings. Hosea 11.5 talks about this. We're not there yet, but it says, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sinful nation of Assyria are not the chosen people of God, but they will be utilized by the sovereign God to accomplish harsh and chastening things that have become necessary because of their rebellious hearts of the northerners. In chapter 10 of Isaiah's prophecy, Assyria is described in this way. Verse 5, they are the rod of God's anger. They are the staff in the hands of his fury. So Assyria, though they are not God's chosen people, are used in such a way that he chastises the northern people who are his people. Many of the elect are still there. The remnant is still there so that they may learn and repent from their sinfulness. Just as Babylon would be used to humble and scald the southern kingdom of Judah 150 some years later, Assyria will be as a tool in the hand of Yahweh. Now this does not mean that God has traded the northern kingdom for a new covenant people. It is not as though God will henceforth draw near to the Assyrians and bring salvation through them. Rather, his use of Assyria is done by providential command. No graceful covenant is, is granted to the Assyrians at all. They act as a tool in the hand of Yahweh. However, their own sinfulness will also surely be punished eventually. Assyria will see that despite their time of success as an empire, their ignorance of God's law and their habit of being ruled by the desires of their own sinful hearts will lead to their own special judgment and destruction. Yahweh is a lion to all who ignore his commands. In verse 14 of Hosea 5, Yahweh describes the conquest that he will make over Israel as he takes on this lion-like posture towards them. He says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Here as God promises to return again to his place, he's touching back on the prophetic judgment of chapter 4. His greatest punishment is to let his face no longer shine upon these people. 
Now, while the national destruction will be final, there is hope yet for those few within the grander body who long for a restoration. The nation will fall, but there are still believers who will make it through this process. Verse 15, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. So in light of this impending judgment that God is preparing to bring upon the northern kingdom, what is to be done? In one sense, there is nothing to be done. Who can oppose the Lord? Who can take up arms against him? Who can push back his will or avert his mighty gaze? There is and has always been a compassion in the Lord God. But God is a mighty lion who will surely destroy sin. Do you remember the words that Nebuchadnezzar spoke after for a time in his pride God had decided to humble him? Nebuchadnezzar and his armies had also been used as a tool such as the Assyrian armies are about to be used. And he began to become boastful about his, his exploits. He began to look upon himself as a great and mighty leader and to not acknowledge the fact that God, in fact, had used him in a way and had empowered him to defeat the people of Judah. When God restored Nebuchadnezzar's mind after seven years of losing his mind and acting like a base beast, this Gentile king declared the truth. He says in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 35, he says, For his, meaning the God of Israel, meaning Yahweh, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? So in a sense, there is nothing to be done. God will accomplish what he desires to accomplish. While Yahweh is like a lion, he is something much greater than a lion. So there is and has always been a compassion in him. And a compassionate God, even as he accomplishes his justified wrath upon the north, may find it in his heart to display mercy again. And so to see the answer, we now leave behind chapter 5 and enter into Hosea chapter 6, where the first three verses are a response to the weighty material found in chapter 5. Hosea writes, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up, that we may live before Him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So here we see a very distinct change in voice as we read those first three verses of chapter 6. And honestly, not every scholar is in agreement about who is speaking to begin chapter 6, whether this is God speaking, whether this is uh, Hosea speaking, whether it is some other voice. But I think the context makes it quite clear myself. Hosea, who has been commissioned to bring the heavy news of judgment upon his own countrymen, his own brothers and sisters in the north, rests for a moment from the judgment that he must bring in order to shine a glimmer of hope upon Israel. Hosea is a herald. He is a bringer of the truth. But he's also a recipient of the prophecy himself. This, in some ways, is like Hosea 
or Isaiah rather, chapter 6. Do you remember when Isaiah is given this picture of the throne room of God? He is, he is able to look upon the glory of God and the glory of God's robes fills the temple. And he sees these things and his immediate response is to say, woe is me for I am undone. He thinks he's going to die having seen the presence of God. He's sure that this is going to, it's going to destroy him. And the reason being is that he is a man of unclean lips and he dwells among a people of unclean lips. He sees his connection to the whole of Israel and that it condemns him. But he sees also his own personal sin and that he cannot stand before God guilt-free unless God would be the one who cleanses him. And so Hosea himself is a herald of the truth of this judgment, but he is also a person who belongs to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this prophecy comes upon his people as well. And so that makes sense that verse 1 would say, Come, let us return to the Lord. That can't be the, the words of God himself, because God does not have to return to the Lord. God has never left the Lord. Come, let us return to the Lord. I believe this is Hosea beckoning his people to do exactly what God said the people must do at the end of chapter 5, which is repent. The messianic overtones of verse 3 likely represent a future hope that Hosea knows the people of God need to look forward to. And so he plants this seed of hope again in the hearts of his people. And so the prophet's plea in light of the judgment of God that is bearing down on the nation is this, come, let us return to the Lord. Hosea knows the extent of Israel's guilt. He also knows the power of Yahweh's mercy and grace. He has personally witnessed the impossible reconciliation in his own family. Remember, his wife, much like the northern kingdom, had committed harlotry against him. There was very little hope of her returning and becoming a faithful wife to him. But through the mighty hand of God, that family is one again. Those children who initially had been given names of judgment, their names had been reinterpreted as names of hope, as we learned in chapter 3. And so this Hosea, this prophet, has seen personally the powerful and transformational hand of God upon his own family. And now he says, Do not forget, my brothers and my sisters, God can do the same for his people. His wisdom to the northern kingdom is very simple. Though Israel has wandered away from God and the truth, the only hope of seeing that covenant relationship salvaged is not by bringing some great sacrifice. It's, it's not by doing some, some great act of honor to the Lord. It's simply by appealing to the unmatched mercy of God. And so this plea is actually not so much about what Israel is to do. It is about their inability to do anything. Their only response must be a repentant return in hopes that God will do for them what they cannot do for themselves. He can forgive. Yahweh can have mercy. He can turn their hearts away from this sin that they have not been able to let go up to this point. And just like chapter 5, Hosea's response can be broken down into two categories, the actions of men and the actions of God. But in these three verses, the actions of man and God alternate and God's actions carry redeeming quality rather than condemning quality. They are the emphasis of the section. So what is Israel to do? The imperative is, come let us return to the Lord. And in Hosea's plea, to return is to repent to him. Verse 15, again, in the last chapter, had said, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress 
earnestly seek me. And this is exactly what Hosea is charging his people to do now in returning to the Lord. Jesus had preached a parable in his ministry about a certain son who insulted his father. You're probably very familiar with it, the parable of the prodigal son. He had insulted his father by demanding his inheritance early, even before his father had passed away. And then he took that inheritance and he ran off on his own and he squandered it. He squandered its value on unfaithful, quote-unquote, friends and on licentious living. And those friends abandoned him as soon as the money ran out. You remember in that story that Jesus tells about how that young man finally found himself so destitute and so poor that the only work he could get was to try to feed the pigs at a pig farm. And for an Israelite, we know how insulting that would be as pigs are considered an unclean animal, not even worthy of eating for the Israelite. And yet these pigs were being fed pods and leftovers that were more nourishment that this prodigal son was getting himself. And so it took him falling that far and being so low in such mire and such destitution before he finally had that aha moment, that realization that the only hope that he had as a failure of a son and as a failure as a Jew was to return to his father who held all the cards. To return to his father and simply ask for mercy. And, and the plea that he was going to bring to his dad was not, make me your son again. It was simply, please just let me be a slave on your property. I know that you'll treat me better than these Gentile pig farmers will. May I just simply come and be near to you again. In returning to his father, there's an admission of guilt. There is an admission of his father's authority over him and that he was wrong to request that inheritance early. There is also an acceptance for whatever his father deems uh, willing to do to his son. Whether he makes him a slave or turns him away, he knows that he doesn't deserve anything. That is true repentance. And that is what Hosea is calling the northern kingdom to do. They have been brought so severely low because of their iniquity and they're about to be brought even lower that Hosea tells them the only proper response to this is for you to return to the Lord God with a repentant heart that acknowledges the power and the weight of your sin. A return to God in word only would not do. The kind of return that Hosea is urging must be characterized by an authentic understanding of the depth of the failure that has been made on the part of the returning party. Repentance must be much more than I don't want to suffer for my sin anymore. Or hell would be full of repentant people, wouldn't it? No one in hell wants to be there. But the sad fact is, they don't want to be under the authority of God either. The repentant heart sees the weight of sin, does not want to feel its sin a sting anymore, but also sees that the greatest sting of sin is a distance from the sinner in God. And so repentance is a confession. Yes, I have done wrong. And yes, I deserve whatever punishment you decree to give to me, O God. But repentance is also the confession that the judge who issues the punishment is not a stranger to me. He has shown in radical ways to the northern kingdom that he is a patient God, that he is a kind judge, not only willing to endure, but to provide the way to forgiveness for those who believe on him. God and God alone holds in his hands the power and the means to bring about forgiveness and restoration. To return to the Lord for Israel would entail returning to the terms of the Old Covenant until the full clarity of the New Covenant had been revealed. 
It wasn't, it wasn't going to be enough for them to just say, please take away our hurt. They needed to say, yes, God, we are your covenant people and we accept your terms. Verse 1 acknowledges that the suffering of the northern kingdom is about to endure. It is not a means by which God's people will be annihilated. It's not a means by which God will snuff them out forever. Rather, it is an extreme way by which they will be matured and refined. He has torn us, says Hosea, so that, meaning that he has an intention in the tearing, so that he may heal us again. There's a usefulness to true chastisement. It says also, he has struck us down, but he will bind us up. This indicates a confidence that at least to those who are truly belong to the covenant of Yahweh, that God has every intention of healing and correcting his sick and wayward children. It pleased God to save some. And this severe mercy that comes upon us from time to time is necessary. We might not want it, but we need it. Uh, one of our sisters uh, here at church recently got a little kitten. And that kitten has proved quite a rambunctious little furball. And she was telling me the other day about how difficult it is because she loves that kitten dearly, but the kitten keeps biting her in the feet. Every time she walks through the living room, it latches onto her. It wants to play, and it's scratching her, and it's biting her, and it's leaving these little cut marks all over. And our sister's a diabetic. And I'm telling her, you've got to, you've got to give this little cat... A little smack on the nose. This cat needs to know that those kind of bites and scratches are not, they're not acceptable because they could do great harm in the long term. If that cat's depending upon you, then you need to make sure that you take care of you so that the cat doesn't do you harm. But she would not hit the cat. Refused. Could not bear to do it. Eventually, I wasn't the only one telling her these things, and so she went and got a water bottle. And she began to squirt the water bottle at the cat. Every time the cat would bite her feet, and now finally this little cat has learned and is not biting, is not scratching. But it needed to get wet. It needed a thwack on the nose. It needed something for it to see that this is not acceptable behavior. And God's people need the same kind of chastisement. It takes extreme mercy at times for God to turn us away from the sin that we are guilty of. And that is what he has done. Because it pleases God to save his people. In verse 2, we get a messianic preview here. It says, After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. This creates a pretty clear line from the old covenant to the new covenant. God has a way of redeeming his people once and for all through the ultimate sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And it is on the third day that Jesus promised to rise again for our sake. Having defeated death and having defeated sin, Jesus, who deserved not to be punished but to be exalted, this Jesus who willingly allowed himself to be subjected to the consequences of the laws that we broke, his death would not be final. On the third day, he would rise again and show that as God in the flesh, death has no true power over him. This is the messianic picture that Hosea is sowing through this prophecy that he gives to us that we read in the Old Covenant. And there are very clear gospel implications to this. In verse 3, Hosea issued a second imperative. He says, let us press on to know the Lord. So we are to return to the Lord with a repentant heart. But then let us also press on to know this Lord. Remember, my people have been destroyed. Why? Because of a lack of knowledge. 
And so Hosea says, repent, but don't remain ignorant in the ways that made you need to repent in the first place. Seek after your God. Let us know him and rejoice in him, in his power and his goodness. Let us rejoice in his ability to save and his merciful willingness to save. He is not only mighty to save, he is pleased to do so. So repent and seek to know your God. But know that whatever mercy that is poured out upon his people is not the reward of their repentance or the payment for their knowledge. It is a graceful gift granted by a holy God who has always had a plan to save those who belong to him. He is going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers and springs that water the earth. Praise God that he has come and that the redeeming and healing waters of his grace have poured about out upon the new covenant people. I pray that you are a part of that covenant. If you have not yet experienced the grace of Jesus Christ, I pray that it will not take a severe mercy in your life for God to show you how much you need him. Look and see the mercy that he has given to this covenant people. Look and see the open door that he has given for repentance, that there is still hope for those who have not yet passed out of this world and into judgment. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Seek him while he may be found. Would you bow with me as we close in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for your wonderful grace. And we ask, Lord, that even as we put our eyes upon the Old Testament and we read about the history of your covenant people, Lord, that we would not tune out. We would not think that this is just stuff that's happened before and will not happen again. But Father, we will learn lessons from their experience with you. You have revealed progressively to us the beauty of your plan. And we know that Christ is, is the grand revealing of your means to save your people. And so help us, Lord, to recognize that the the implications of this passage and how it points forward to that fulfillment in Christ. We are grateful to exalt your risen son today and to be thankful that those of us who have hope and are secure in our salvation are so because of the perfected and completed work of Jesus Christ. Let us eagerly await his return and let us seek to know him even more as we walk in the goodness of his grace and as we try to fill this world with the testimony of what he has done in our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.